Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and two weeks ago, I was in Starbucks, and I saw a big sign they had that was announcing that they now offered pumpkin spikes seasonal beverage. I took a picture and I posted it on Facebook saying in all caps, it's still summer people. Well, it's now September and although fall has not officially arrived yet, Labor Day traditionally marks the start of the fall season, including the ramping up of the political season. On today's podcast, we will take a look at what to pay attention to in terms of politics over the next few months. And for that conversation, I am joined not only by my co-host Charlene Chang, but also, since we'll be diving into the numbers, we are also joined by our favorite data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. How are you both? Julie, you've been recovering from COVID and looking better than last time I saw you. And are you both ready for the fall? Thanks for asking, Steve. I am definitely feeling better. I'm not 100% really hoping and planning that I will be soon. Um, so many friends suffering from long COVID or just extended cases that that's concerning. But I was at least before that able to enjoy some fun times over the summer, went to CDMX, Mexico City, and had a fabulous time there. It's even more amazing than I remember it being and dropped off my son to spend his summer there. And I think I've now made another person who loves the city almost as much as I do, if not even more. So overall, good summer, not a great way to end it with COVID, but I feel optimistic about next steps. Yeah, Julia, it's so good to see you. I'm glad to hear that you're on the up and up and you're definitely not alone. I have a number of friends who also ended the summer this way unexpectedly and we had different plans with them and they had to cancel and so we know this is what's happening so wishing you a, a steady recovery and same for all our listeners if they're out there also going through something similar wishing everybody that people are on the mend yes the end of summer i just can't believe we're here and beginning of fall and it's definitely back back to school season is upon us and we just wrapped up the long weekend with a camping trip that was brief and rainy and cold, but it was still <laughs> pretty fun. <laughs> so back in April, which I know seems like so long ago, we actually did do a preview of the 2024 presidential election cycle. And that's where we talked about the current slate of Republican presidential candidates, the potential nominees. And now it's September. So, like I said, the summer's over. We're that much closer to being exactly a year out from Election Day. Hard to believe. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about some races that we're watching. We'll look at two gubernatorial races, both in the South, Kentucky and Mississippi. And we're also going to scan Virginia state legislature. Then we'll give a quick update on the Republican primary that officially kicked off its first debate last month on August 23rd. So first, let's start with Kentucky. When many people think of Kentucky in politics, they probably first think of Senator Mitch McConnell, who recently made bigger headline news because he froze up on TV. He has some apparently health issues that caused him what doctors say might have been a small seizure. And I will say, as much as I definitely don't like the man, definitely feel like he's done incredible damage to our democracy. I don't like seeing anybody, especially an elder, suffer like that. But anyway, 
the Republican nominee for governor is actually one of Mitch's protégés. Daniel Cameron is Kentucky's current attorney general, and he's the first black man to win a gubernatorial nomination for a major party in Kentucky. So in case some of you weren't following this particular piece of news that carefully, you heard that right. He's, he's black and he's in Kentucky and he's the first man to win a gubernatorial nomination for a major party in Kentucky, and that party is Republican. So um, just let all that sink in. And Cameron's running to unseat incumbent Democratic governor Andy Bashir, who is actually relatively popular among Republicans in Kentucky, according to a polling data from Morning Consult. So Kentucky is just much more interesting, kind of complex and counterintuitive than I thought. Cameron, who's only 37, by the way, quite young. He's made a name for himself by suing Bashir's administration to enforce a 15-week abortion ban before the Supreme Court had overturned Roe. So Kentucky is shaping up, like I said, real interesting. Steve, can you talk about the political dynamics at play in Kentucky? And personally, I'm curious how Cameron would fare before voters in Kentucky. Kentucky is 83% white. I'm personally curious how Cameron would fare before voters in Kentucky. It's an overwhelmingly white state. And I'm just also curious and perplexed, how did somebody like Bashir, who ran as a Democrat, won in the first place in a state that's as red as Kentucky? So it is an unusual constellation of factors, and it it reflects, I think, the flux of the surface level of where we're at in U.S. politics is that thing, the things that traditionally have been markers before that would imply certain things in terms of, oh, a black candidate wouldn't do this or a Democrat, et cetera, don't always necessarily play themselves out. And so there are a few different underlying dynamics um, that we should understand um, about Kentucky. So as you were saying, it is traditionally and fundamentally quite conservative state. Trump easily carried it in 2020 and 2016. Republicans have a supermajority in the state legislature. And they've been, they've overridden a lot of Bashir's uh, vetoes, and every other constitutional office is actually held by a Republican. So uh, two things happened in terms of allowing Bashir to win um, in 2019. First is that the incumbent that he was running against was very unpopular, and had had a lot of different things go wrong, and a lot of he had gotten on the wrong side of education, public education issues, and teachers, and so he was extremely unpopular. So yeah, that is one factor. And then the other is that Bashir has a good last name for Kentucky. His father had been governor back in a prior day when Democrats were actually stronger within the state. So he had that good, um, that good name. So the combination of those two things, plus high voter turnout um, among Democrats, and I think less enthusiasm on the Republican side tied to the unpopularity um, of the prior governor. So even with all of that, Bashir only won by 0.4% of the vote in 2019. It was a super close election, and it went on for weeks and weeks afterwards, and then finally, ultimately, Bashir prevailed. So you have that issue in terms of that dynamic. And then you've got you know, Cameron being, uh, we'll put it this way, Cameron having a fair amount of melanin in his skin. So, But I think what we're seeing, and you're seeing this a lot, you're seeing it, we'll talk a little bit more about in the presidential race, we saw it in the Georgia uh, Senate race, right, where Herschel Walker, who had no business even being in politics, has, you know, almost won that Senate seat, the overwhelming support from white people and white voters. And so the fundamental issue is not the melanin in the skin of the candidate anymore. It's the loyalty of that candidate, whatever color they are to this concept of should this be primarily a white country or not. 
And so we're finding a number of different people of color who are singing that Dixie song and the getting response from uh, white voters. The other issue, I was listening to a couple podcasts in preparation for this one from Kentucky and from uh, Mississippi, began to give me a little more insight. We did a, a podcast issue, right, on the reality of all these attacks on the trans community, et cetera. And as they were discussing it, it became clearer to me that how this is being used in usual in U.S. politics today, and that the trans community, in a lot of ways, are the black people of today, and that it's not just the people, but it's the who they are th- a threat to. So historically, in this country, going back to the 17th century, certainly all these uh, newspapers in after Lincoln was elected. There's all this concern for what is going to happen to white women. And are black men going to go after white women? And then they have to be fearful, and you create this boogeyman, and that becomes a driving force. That's not what they're doing with trans. Be clear about that. And so our, our girls are at risk in that from these trans girls and women. And so it's the same underlying fear that they're trying to appeal to about we have to protect our our you know our girls and our women and so that's a so I say that writ large, but also in terms of the these can't these these races and so both of these gubernatorial candidates in Kentucky and in Mississippi are running hard on these on these trans issues um, and are really trying to attract the trans community. So we see how that's also planning itself out. And then I think the last trend in terms of the Kentucky piece, which benefits Bashir is the ongoing reality of the backlash that is happening because of the Republican and conservative overreach on the issue of reproductive freedom. So after striking down Roe v. Wade, we talked about this some in our, in our newsletter, right, then the Kansas election, the Ohio election, places that are not seen as terribly progressive have actually had strong, more progressive election results in terms of protecting reproductive freedom. And like in, in 2022, Kentuckians rejected Amendment Amendment 2, so anti-abortion ballot measure that would have established no constitutional right to an abortion. And that was defeated by a margin of four points. So those are the underlying dynamics. And I think that that sets itself up for a fairly hopeful potential outcome for Bashir and for the Democrats. Thanks, Steve. I feel like that really helps my understanding. I think that a lot of us who grew up have this sort of single image of Kentucky and Kentuckians. I should be um, clear for me, somebody who grew up on, you know, the East Coast in New Jersey, New York, and having uh, not been to Kentucky before, just this image of what Kentucky is like, you know, in terms of it being red state, predominantly white, which it is, but not necessarily as complex politically as some of the things that you just laid out. So I find it really interesting to understand how the nuances, that it's more nuanced than some of us who don't have that much clarity in terms of the politics in Kentucky, take the time to to look into or think about or read about. So thanks for that. Julie, what's the polling data showing for Cameron and Bashir? And how are you thinking about the potential for Democrats to maximize their chances in a state? specifically like to Kentucky? Yeah, so as a starting point, I think we definitely do need to all understand that Kentucky is indeed a very white state. It's got 88% of their eligible voters who are white, 
and if you compare that nationally, it's 66%, right? So it's, it's a very marked difference. Um, in a poll conducted in early August by public policy polling, it shows actually that current Dem governor Andy Bashir is up by eight percentage points over the Republican challenger Cameron. Bashir's approval was also tested in a late June poll, so a little bit before that, and that showed 58% of the voters approved of the job performance of Bashir thus far, compared to 39% who disapproved. So, you know, well regarded overall in general, um, which is surprising given those demographics we just shared. Bashir also has more cross-party appeal than Cameron and was leading among independents in that June poll. And also in the June poll, we found that 15% of registered Republicans and 23% of Trump supporters said they would actually vote for Bashir, while only 5% of Dems and 2% of Biden supporters said they'd vote for Cameron. That's really interesting. Uh, it is fascinating to to hear those numbers, figures of how many, what percentage of Trump supporters would vote for a Democrat <laughs> and uh, the 15 percent of the registered Republicans. Funding wise, Julie, what do we know about how Bashir and Cameron are doing? They're definitely spending very differently. So as of August 5th, Bashir's campaign, along with allied Democratic groups, have spent a total of $6.2 million pushing out messages pro-Bashir, as well as attacking Cameron's record. And um, that's according to Medium Buying. That's the latest thing that I could find on that. On Cameron's side, they're trying to tie Bashir to Biden as much as they can. And they're doing so with the 2.4 million spending advantage so far. So there is one other thing I wanted to also uh, tie in for our listeners about this race, right? So our last podcast episode was with Aaron Heaney of uh, Showing Up for Racial Justice. And so they are heavily involved in this race in Kentucky, and they're particularly working on trying to engage white voters and get them to be better, more progressive, and be more responsive and build support among the white community. And actually, Julie's been working with them and trying to help them design a methodological approach so that we can actually learn lessons from this race about how to, what works best in terms of attracting white support. And so that's another aspect of what uh, why this race actually is important um, for the whole country in terms of what we actually have to pay attention to. Okay, let's travel a little further south to Mississippi and look at and talk about another gubernatorial race. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves is up for re-election. However, Reeves has consistently polled under 50% this year, and that's not a great place to be as an incumbent. The Democratic challenger is Brandon Presley, who and I find this fascinating. He's the second cousin of Elvis Presley. Steve, this is a race I know you've been paying attention to. What do you find most interesting about Presley, the Democratic candidate, besides the fact that he's the second cousin of Elvis Presley? How did you know that I was a big Elvis fan? <laughs> I was actually very uh, sad when I was passed, when I was a little child and whatnot. Um, yeah, the king was big in our family when I was growing up too. My dad was would do fantastic impersonations. So writ large, I think a couple of things about Mississippi that it is the I believe it was the second worst state in the country for Obama in terms of white support, second only to Louisiana at that time. And then in one of the prior gubernatorial elections, the Democrat, this is maybe a decade ago, got is about 12% of the white vote. 
So you have that reality. And it's also, and this is not parallel, but it's very much related, it's the blackest state in the country that the, is the highest of its population. It's like 35, 36% black, something in that range. It's range. So it's no accident that the white support is so low in a state that that black in terms of the fear and the concerns that are around um, African-American control. And that goes all the way back, you know, certainly to post-Civil War, if not 1619 itself. So you have that result. So, so it's very hard for a Democrat, for a white Democrat, to do well within that state. And so it's interesting, and I think not entirely irrelevant, frankly, that um, this is Elvis's cousin. And so it's like what you have to find what advantage you can have uh, with white voters and what are the different issues that you can actually have play out in ways that, not even just issues, what are the different uh, factors that you can distinguish yourself in ways that can change the perception of some of the different voters and whatnot. And so that, I think, is not irrelevant. I think it's partly why this race is more competitive than prior Democratic candidacies have been within Kentucky. And then and just say, just, just, well, two other things about this race is that, you know, listening to this podcast of Mississippi reporters, and they were so baffled. It was actually similar. I listened to a podcast of Georgia reporters looking at the Georgia election data as well. And it's there, these reporters are so baffled by the seeming um, contradictions in the polling data. In the Mississippi race, right, there's a, one of the big issues is the grocery tax. And so if you poll people, they want to get rid of the grocery tax and it's very, you know, it affects them on like a weekly level, et cetera, et cetera. Presley is making a big deal on the, on the grocery tax and really you're going to base his campaign on that, um, as well as on Medicaid expansion in terms of making health care, which is like 70 plus percent of people in the polls, which are people really into the Medicaid expansion. But he's, he's not doing nearly those numbers in terms of the polling. And his reporters are completely perplexed. And they're like, well, it just doesn't make sense in that how the, there's, you know, people say, oh, in Mississippi, for some reason in Mississippi, that the, there's a, you know, disconnect between the issues and, and the candidates. And it's like, we're in a civil war still, people. That's the issue. And it's just fascinating to me how much they <laughs> overlooked that, even in the blackest state in the country and even in the state with one of the lowest supports of whites for Democrats. That doesn't come up at all in the analysis. And so that's the fundamental underlying driving reality of this race. And that it's only of uh, interest or it's only competitive, partly because uh, Presley's doing better among whites than some other previous folks have done. And it does also raise this question about, because since it's so black, you don't need a ton of white people. And if there's a very large black uh, mobilization, you can also make it competitive. And so we will learn a lot in this race from those factors. Steve, as you mentioned, Mississippi is the blackest state in the U.S. and maybe the most racially polarized. Mike Espy, who is the former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and former House Rep from Mississippi, who went on to run for Senate twice in 2018 and 2020, and he lost both times. He recently told Vox that in Mississippi, the difference, quote, the difference between winning by a little and losing by a little really depends on the strength of the black vote, which is basically what you just said. I thought it was interesting, you know, just to hear from somebody like him who actually ran um, twice for Senate. And um, he came close-ish, but um, he didn't win. But Democrats haven't won a Mississippi governor's race in this century, which is, um, you know, interesting context for this race. 
Julie, what does the data show in Mississippi? And I'm curious if you can share some data to explain what do we mean when we say Mississippi is the blackest state? So it's been consistently easy in recent years, at least, for Dems to get up to about 45% of the vote um, here. Dems meaning a combination of the African-American voters and the white voters. But it's been nearly impossible for them to top that 50%. Uh, Roughly 37% of the population in Mississippi is African-American. And those Mississippians are almost invariably vote for Democrats. I mean, it's a really, really high share of the black vote that goes down. Donald Trump won the Magnolia State by a 16-point margin in 2020. That's Mm -hmm. a lot. (laughs) And exit polls showed that 81% of the white voters supported Trump, with only 5% of the black voters. If you look at a map of the state, you can very clearly see the divide. Where black voters are clustered, Democrats can and do win, and where they aren't, they don't. Uh, One poll back in January showed Reeves with only a four-point lead over Presley. So, you know, it's early days and all, but there does seem to be some uh, reason for optimism about Reeves' chances going in um, at this point, at least in the race. And what do we know campaign finance-wise, Julie? How is it looking for Reeves and Presley when it comes to raising money and spending money so far? According to the most recent campaign finance reports, um, Reeves's campaign has more than five times as much money on hand as Presley's, um, and that's 9.6 million versus 1.85 million. So it's a very meaningful difference in terms of fundraising. And that fundraising difference is playing out in terms of these issues the way that I was just talking about before, right? And so in the past few weeks, the incumbent, the Republican right, has run three different ads on the whole trans issue and really trying to whip up fear and hysteria. But And so he gets a combination of the money advantage to be able to saturate the airways with this fear and hate mongering. Um, that's how the, the financial advantage does play itself out. One other interesting data point from the poll, one of the polls that I looked at was kind of fascinating in that 60% of the people did not want Reeves to be reelected. And yet, he has like an advantage among when you put up the actual choice between the two different candidates. But I do think that that another point that came up one of the polls too is that there's a fairly high I don't don't have an opinion number for Presley, and so that provides some level of opportunity for growth as we can either introduce him on his good position on the issues or at least let people know that he is the cousin of the king. Yeah, I wonder if that'll weigh in his favor, especially. among the fans out there. All right, before we talk about the Republican primary, what I like to think of the primary zoo for the presidential race, let's make our way back to the East Coast and discuss the Virginia State House races, which are happening this November. Steve, Virginia is a major point of focus in both your books and Correct me if I remember any correctly. I should know as your editor of the book, it's the birthplace of the Confederacy. It was the capital of the Confederacy. Capital. Okay, capital of the Confederacy. Okay, knew I was close. Uh, And I know you think, you talk a lot about Virginia in that it shapes a lot of, you know, your thinking and when you talk about the progressive movement. Julie, can you give us a high-level overview of what seats are at play in Virginia and how the numbers are shaking out? 
In 2021, Republicans flipped control of the governorship and they also at the same time gained a 52 to 48 majority in the House of Delegates. So that's where things stand right now. Democrats need to flip just three of those seats to take back the majority. In the Senate, which has 40 seats in it, Democrats have a 22 to 18 majority, meaning that Republicans could gain control of the chamber by flipping two of those seats. So close in each chamber. Only three of Virginia's 40 state Senate seats and eight of the 100 House of Delegates seats are considered to be competitive. That's according to the Virginia Public Access Project. So let me just add to that, too. I had a chance to talk to our friend Tram Wynn of New Virginia Majority last week, and she was giving me the latest updates around where things stand there. And so there are two overarching, well, maybe three overarching realities in terms of understanding where Virginia's at and where it's actually heading. It's still fundamentally a progressive and trending progressive state overall. Nine of the past 10 statewide elections um, have been won by the Democrats. The state, like the country, is increasingly uh, racially diversifying, which is making its politics more progressive. Now, we lost the governorship in 2019 largely on low turnout and low investment in turnout of progressive voters and voters of color. And the uh, Youngkin, the governor, really inflamed white fears and resentment with all of his attacks on critical race theory, trying to model that for the other Republicans who are out there, which is another aspect of the backdrop of this Virginia race and why it's also important from a national standpoint, is Youngkin wants to be president. And so he's looking at this gubernatorial election as a chance for him to audition for the Republican primary and as a way of showing how Republicans can be successful and to uh, position himself so that if Trump uh, stumbles or the support um, falls for Trump, that he'll, he can be uh, uh, waiting in the wings. They could kind of turn to him. So that's the backdrop of this race. And apparently he even has till late November, I think, Youngkin does, the governor, to get into some of the Republican primary elections. So he's trying to demonstrate his appeal. So that's important, I think, part of this backdrop. And as a result of that, he's uh, investing large sums of money into these individual races. Because um, Youngkin's independently wealthy himself, and they can raise great amounts of funding, so that's affecting the competitiveness and the and the and the potential there. And the other reality, and why that's so important in terms of the fundraising um, imbalance, is that they just went through redistricting after many lawsuits and court cases, et cetera. They redistricted all the different seats, and so then a lot of the candidates are also new, who are actually running, and so people don't know them, and so the. Uh, fundraising advantage becomes even more important in this context of introducing people to the voters. And so Youngkin going on early with TV ads, defining the race, explaining to people, that's one of these important big backdrops. So on the House side in Virginia, uh, we have more competitive races, more races in play than we do on the Senate side. It looks like about 48 of the seats are most likely going to go Dem. They definitely lean D and 46 lean R, which leaves, since there are 106 seats that are sort of the toss-ups or, you know, sort of in the middle. Those seats are all statistically evenly matched at present. And so there's really six six races to focus on where we're gonna see all the attention and all the resources really being funneled once we shore up those 48 and 46 seats, of course. Um, 
one thing to note is that some of these House races are layered under Senate seats. An interesting thing about Virginia and the way their um, sort of jurisdictions are laid out is that Senate seats directly align geographically to House seats, which is unusual because most places around the country do it differently. And so you've got these competitive Senate seats in similar places as in the same places as you have uh, competitive House seats. And that really gives a lot of opportunity for a great deal of focus and um, resource allocation in those places. And then another thing to point out is just that House members, people running um, the candidates right now tend to be more progressive on the House side. And that also gives a lot of opportunity for really being able to reach out and motivate base voters that we're gonna need to have show up in order to get to victory. So in the Senate side in Virginia, there are paths to get that are, you know, seem very feasible to get to 20 in the Senate, 20 out of those 40 seats. So that would put us at an even 50-50 split. The swing state that we'll be focused on goes through moderate areas that are also very competitive historically. And so that's gonna be, that's very much a toss up district and um, you know, all eyes are gonna be there. That was definitely a lot of great insight into what's happening in Virginia. I know this is already a data-packed episode, but let's, before we wrap up, let's talk about the current Republican presidential primary, which kicked off with its first debate recently. Julie, what's the data showing in terms of who's leading in the polls? Several polls published last week showed former President Donald Trump leading in Iowa with 42% compared to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's 19% and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott's 9%. In New Hampshire, uh, Trump is at 50% versus DeSantis at 11, and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy is at 10%. And then over in South Carolina, Trump's at 48% versus 14% for both DeSantis and Scott. So Trump is far, far ahead in the polls at present. In the national polls, though, Trump currently has the support of 50% of GOP primary voters. And that's actually a slide of two percentage points since last Wednesday's GOP primary debate. But it's still a commanding lead over any of the opponents. Trump is currently at 50% in the average of the national Republican primary polls. DeSantis, who's his closest competitor, is in a very distant second place with 15%. So 5-0 versus 1-5. Not good. Ramaswamy is currently enjoying a bit of a bounce post um, the debate, I suppose. Over the last month, he has risen from 6 to 10% in the national polls. Steve, based on what you're seeing so far, what do you feel are the implications of this Republican primary on the upcoming presidential election? So I think there are a few um, kind of big picture things that we should be watching in terms of this race, right? And so... One clearly is the undiminished strength of Trump in that, you know, I try to uh, reference this in my book, how we, how we Win the Civil War, and that we continually, consistently underestimate the political appeal of white nationalism in this country. And that in, when uh, David Duke ran for governor and then senator in Louisiana in 19, early 1990s, actually in our very, one of our very first podcasts, Tim Wise came out and talked about that. Everyone was like, oh, no, of course he's not. He, I'm sorry. 
David Duke, a literal former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, ran for governor and senator in Louisiana. And everyone's like, oh, he was a KKK. He can't have, he's not going to have any chance, blah, blah, blah. And he almost won. And he, he, almost, he certainly almost won the, uh, well, he, did, he did far better than people expected and shocked everybody, showing the strength, the political appeal and strength of white nationalism. People discounted Trump um, in 2015 and 2016. He's too extreme, he's too radical, he's, you know, you, et cetera. And so, you know, we see how that has played itself out. And so four criminal indictments in a party which prides itself on being the party of law and order, he continues. Mm-hmm. To, he continues to lead and to dominate. So nothing. It's what he. It's what he discovered in twenty in the in the primary. It's like I can stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any support. And what he left out of that, as long as he is still seen as the champion of white nationalism in this country, he wouldn't lose any support. And that is playing itself out in a big way. So you have that. I do feel, in terms of the general election, that it makes him. I mean, it's a, a very odd situation where in terms of the short-term general election, if it were just Trump versus Biden again, and even particularly Trump with all these different issues, Biden's a stronger position. And there are some small number of Republicans who cannot tolerate Trump, may or may not vote for Biden, but wouldn't vote for him. And we've seen that in a number of different elections. In a bigger threat to democracy and humanity standpoint, Trump is an extraordinary existential threat. And so we have this kind of dilemma about how do we how do we approach this? So anyway, Trump's persistent strength, the strength of white nationalism, that's one major factor to watch. The second is the rhetoric that is unfolding within the primary, particularly with um, Ramaswamy and what the things that he's proposed, because he has no, there's a very good podcast episode, the New York Times Daily on him. He's like worse than Trump in 2015 and 2016, because he does not care about what he says at all. And all he's saying is what, just to try to position himself as the most radical, the most, to distinguish himself by saying things which could be cataclysmic in terms of their actual, he wants to send the army into Mexico, he wants to abandon any relationships with Taiwan. He wants to get rid of almost all federal government uh, civil service protections so they can get rid of everybody in the federal government. And so he's just spouting all of this stuff. But the danger of that is it puts it into the public policy debate as possible options of what should actually be advanced. And we don't have a comparable counterweight to that in terms of public policy options on our side that expand the debate. So that's a very dangerous reality and situation that's actually happening. And so the meta picture of the Republican primary, I feel, is that everyone is positioning to see if Trump stumbles or falls, who can emerge as the uh, replacement. I think it's pretty clear that DeSantis is not going to be that. He had been seen as the one. He's just a bad candidate. And even the Republicans are like, he's just not very appealing at all. And I think those polling numbers that Julie was talking about reflect that. But it doesn't mean that any of these other guys could not catch on and could not catch on quickly. And mm-hmm. that's the dynamic that they're all like positioning and hoping to see. Can they catch lightning in a bottle and become the one who will actually emerge? And the person I'm most worried about, frankly, is Tim Scott, in that who is African-American. I talk in the, how we win the Civil War about, I, I hope Tim Scott doesn't think he's in politics because he's smart or talented. He's in the Senate because he's black. 
He had never won an election more than like 6,000 people prior to Obama getting reelected. Republicans saying, oh, no, we need we got to get our black person. Let's take this person who is like a very small elected official within South Carolina and make him U.S. senator from the appointment. There was an appointment that came open. And that's how Tim Scott catapulted to the uh, national prominence. And then he has the Oracle founder, um, Larry Ellison, as his big backer. So Scott doesn't need to raise any money. Ellison can put tens of millions of dollars into a super PAC for him. And then there's this very perverse, talk about African-American candidates, very perverse reality of if Scott were the Republican nominee, it would boost white turnout because they would be so absolved of any kind of guilt about the racism of their party. Say, look, see, we've got our own black guy and they'd be out in force in a way that would be very dangerous. And then Scott is just kind of appealing enough and he's done a few you know tepid things about you know racial injustice overreach that maybe he could peel off one or two or three percent of the black vote in a close election which could be very dangerous so he's frankly who i'm most worried about which would raise the imperative for the democrats to clearly show how that we are with black people we, and so there's not you know, any defection, by even in small numbers, that could be important, though, if they, in fact, get a black candidate. So those are what I think are some of the, the macro trends in terms of what we should be watching. It'll play itself out over the fall. They're going to have these republic, like a number of different re- debates, and we'll see how all this transpires. But that's really what's happening. You have a race to position, to be waiting in the wings in case Trump um, is not nominee, but... He's weathered. What did someone say? Apparently, he he said apparently one more indictment and that'll put him over the top. And so this is pretty much, I think, how he's looking at it. And that's what the numbers are actually playing themselves out. So to be continued, uh, many things to keep our eyes on. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julie. That was such a deep dive. It was like being in class, and my brain is you know had to shift like that summer mode to okay. There's a lot to, we need School to is back in start session. to really pay yes. close, yeah, pay close attention to now because the election season is underway. We're officially in the fall. It was like a big old civics class, lots of numbers, and lots of you know historical information and context, political context. So stay alert and stay informed. And I just appreciate getting the chance to talk to both of you about great. it. Yep, great seeing you guys. Great uh, kicking off the fall, and on we go. Mm-hmm. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast and sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter, at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check, recorded virtually at the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith. <laughs>